This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Just a heads up, this episode contains topics of violence towards children and animals that may be disturbing to some. Please take care while listening. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. It's a story we grew up with in the history classes of our youth, the Revolutionary War and the events leading up to it. Though some violent or heavily political aspects were removed until we were older. Such is the case with the Boston Tea Party, as we've come to know it. The American colonies had just started to recover from the French and Indian War, which was part of a larger conflict that played out across the globe as countries fought for more territory. War costs money, to offset its debt, the British Parliament taxed the colonists. In 1765, the Stamp Act taxed all paper goods, from newspapers to legal documents to playing cards. In 1767, Parliament added the Townsend Acts, which taxed consumer goods like paint, glass, lead, and tea, among other things. Colonists were displeased that the British taxed them on raw materials that they supplied and shipped to England. They were less happy that the products were heavily marked up and sent back. Anger and resentment grew, especially since colonists felt they had little to no representation in the parliament that was claiming to act on their behalf. As the resentment grew, so did the violence. In 1770, the Boston Massacre sparked further discord. The last straw was the Tea Act of 1773. The problem had started when the British repealed the Townsend taxes on other products but kept the tax on tea. You see, the revenue from 1.2 million pounds of tea was too appealing. Tea-loving colonials found a solution, though. They boycotted the British East India Company and purchased more affordable, if smuggled, Dutch tea. This left the British East India Company holding millions of pounds of tea. All was not lost for the company, though. It was large enough and had plenty of political connections. In May of 1773, Parliament passed the Tea Act. The East India Company could sell tea duty-free, 
helping to undercut Dutch tea prices. However, the lower prices cut into the profit of smugglers like Sam Adams and John Hancock. Uh, since it wouldn't come across as patriotic to complain about the loss of income from smuggling, they instead decried taxation without representation, making tea their rallying point. In December of 1773, three ships carrying tea from the East India Company arrived in Boston Harbor. To their surprise, an angry mob met them at the port. Much of the crowd had been whipped into a frenzy by a clandestine political group that called themselves the Sons of Liberty. The mob refused to allow the ships to unload, and the governor refused to allow the ships to return to England. This impasse lasted until December 16th. That night, Members of the Sons of Liberty, wearing disguises, quietly slipped onto the ships and tossed the tea overboard. The men left as quietly as they'd boarded and disappeared into the night. We've come to know this event as the Boston Tea Party. And though some residents cheered, many reacted with disgust. George Washington berated Bostonians for their conduct. Other prominent patriots, including Benjamin Franklin, argued in favor of compensating the East India Company for their losses. But ultimately, Parliament's punitive reaction to the Boston Tea Party was one of the sparks that started the Revolutionary War, making it perhaps one of the most notable protests in history. And protests have been part of American life ever since. The reasons have varied, and while we understand the rationale behind some, others have existed only in the darkest recesses of an individual's mind. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. After the American Revolution, the French found themselves preoccupied with growing problems back home, leaving much of the colonized territories in Michigan wide open. Sadly, the indigenous peoples living there weren't much of a consideration when colonists moved in. After a few battles and skirmishes, the settlers took over the prime farming land. Considering New England's weather, many found the climate more temperate. Natural resources were also more abundant it didn't take long before more people moved to the area. In 1805, the Michigan Territory was created, luring in more colonists. The population increased again after the Erie Canal's completion in 1825. And by 1837, one Silas Rose, along with his wife, five children, and all their livestock, relocated from New York to Michigan. The family promptly carved out a portion of land they called Bath in honor of their hometown back in New York. In a few years, Bath had a few dozen settlers. Most were farmers seeking a way to make a living and pass down land from generation to generation. In 1843, Bath became a township, and the citizens held their first election on April 18th of that year. By the mid-1800s, the town had a sawmill, a brick factory, shops, and a post office. Rail service soon followed, allowing their goods to be sold to other towns. They even had a one-room schoolhouse where children of all ages learned side by side. Most children stayed long enough for a grammar school education, roughly eight years. At the time, most kids who wanted to attend high school had to pass an entrance exam. Since high schools weren't common in rural areas, children pursuing further education often went to stay with a relative who lived in town. As Bath grew over the coming decades, neither the kids nor the community benefited from these small schoolhouses. 
across the nation, larger schools provided education for children in grades 1 through 12. By the 19-teens, every morning, motor buses drove through districts of other cities to pick up kids and drop them off at school. Each school had teachers for each of the grades and subjects. By 1922, approximately 12,000 of these new modern schools had been built across the country. While some people were happy about furthering their children's educations, others took offense. Many stated that they had turned out just fine with the old way of teaching. Others wanted to know who would pay for the new schools, uh, buses, and extra teachers. Of course, like in all cities across America, money for schools meant higher taxes. Bath residents argued bitterly for years. Some parents wanted more for their children than what they'd been given. Others thought the cost was too high. Eventually, Bath voted to create a new school. To save money, they opted to renovate an existing one. The local brick factory provided materials. Construction on the school began in the fall of 1921. When they finished, residents boasted that the school was one of the most modern in mid-Michigan. A sense of pride replaced anger for most residents who had been against the school. All except Andrew Kehoe, who had moved to Bath from Tecumseh. His parents had once had high expectations for him. As a child, Kehoe had shown talent with mechanical devices. His aptitude for mechanics had helped modernize the family farm back in Tecumseh. Life changed at 18 when his mother died, and his father remarried a woman 25 years younger. Kehoe didn't care for his father's new wife, and he left home for a while before returning. By then, he had a half-sister, Irene, whom he also did not like. To show his displeasure, he killed Irene's cat. Then, in 1911, the gas stove mysteriously caught fire while his stepmother was making dinner. Kehoe watched her burn for a while before fetching a pail of water. She did not survive. Small towns being small towns, where everyone knows everyone else's business, it had been no secret that Kehoe hated his stepmother and half-sister. And, like most small towns, rumors began to swirl that he had rigged the stove to catch fire. On May 15th, just eight months after his stepmother's death, Kehoe married one Ellen Agnes Price. He'd met Ellen, known simply as Nellie, to family and friends while attending Michigan State College. The couple settled on his family farm. Like other residents, Nellie was an avid churchgoer. Kehoe, however, was not. Once, when the town planned to erect a new church, Kehoe threatened the parish priest with violence for requesting a $400 donation. When his father died, Kehoe purchased farmland in Bath from Nellie's aunt. He paid half in cash and took a mortgage for the remainder. The population in Bath was just over 300, so newcomers were exciting. And many residents recalled Nellie from her childhood trips to her aunt and uncle's farm. They were none the wiser when it came to Kehoe's past. Some regarded him as a kind gentleman who said hello to the children and tipped his hat to the ladies. Others thought he was eccentric, obsessed with the newest farm technologies, like gas-powered tractors. Kehoe didn't dress like most farmers. He took to the day wearing a suit, vest, and shiny dress shoes. Visitors to the farm noted that his tools were kept clean and orderly, not even a rake out of place. 
But talk of his quirky ways and gentlemanly manners soon stopped as he returned to his old ways of being short-tempered and suspicious of everyone. He shot the neighbor's dog for barking, and when a horse he purchased didn't live up to his expectations, he beat it to death. And, of course, there were the odd explosions on the property. While dynamite wasn't unheard of on farms to break up land, most considered it useful only in the most experienced hands. Even so, the couple remained popular among the townsfolk. Kehoe enjoyed spending time at the local farm bureaus, where he showed off his talent with modern technical marvels. He also joined the school board. Though the couple had no children themselves, neighbors considered Kehoe's interest an extension of his commitment to the community. He was well-educated, so his involvement with education seemed natural. No one realized his motives were anything but generous. Kehoe was frugal, to say the least. While he freely spent money on himself and the farm's latest technology, Kehoe felt he shouldn't have to pay for anything that didn't benefit him directly. Nothing set off his temper like taxes, especially taxes for a school. In his mind, since he had no children, he shouldn't have to pay towards their education. But when the board held a vote on November 12th of 1921, only 20 out of 76 opposed a plan to fund the new school's athletic field by raising property taxes. Additional taxes were needed to hire teachers and staff. When the doors opened in the fall of 1922, Kehoe watched the community rally behind the school with complete contempt. A man by the name of Emery Hike, a veteran and one of the school's teachers, also took on the position of superintendent. Hike worked hard to make the busing system successful and focused on earning the school's accreditation. In 1925, he succeeded, making the Bath Consolidated School one of the best schools in Michigan. Kehoe seethed. So, when the board treasurer was up for re-election, Kehoe ran against him and won. He was sworn in a week later. Kehoe took on additional roles as well, working as a janitor and handyman. For the next few years, he fought with the school board and the town over his property's value, trying to reduce it to lower his taxes. Kehoe argued that the taxes had risen to the point where he could no longer pay his mortgage. His wife's aunt, who held the mortgage on the farm, threatened foreclosure. He shouted at her that if he couldn't live there, no one would. A word regarding Kehoe's obstructionist behavior and policies caused him to lose the election for town clerk in 1926. And, adding to his stress, Nellie had tuberculosis, which was often fatal, especially in rural areas like Bath. The townsfolk quietly observed that Kehoe's temper had reached a fever pitch by the end of the 1927 school year. Neighbor Monty Ellsworth noticed a two-foot-long box full of rifle shells in Kehoe's truck. Though Ellsworth didn't tell anyone, the amount of weapons and ammunition his neighbor had stockpiled made him nervous. If Ellsworth had known what else his neighbor had stockpiled, it might have sent off alarm bells loud enough for the entire town. Lightning and thunder rumbled across Bath on the morning of May 18th of 1927. The farming town was happy about the much-needed rain. The resulting power outage was another matter. The storm took out the school generator, preventing the school bell from ringing. The residents carried on as usual. Everywhere in Bath, students prepared for the last day of school. 
Nine-year-old Robert Hart had spent the morning feeding chickens before realizing he was running late. He shouted goodbye to his mom as he ran off to school. Third grader Arnold Boyerla tried convincing his parents to let him stay home and go shopping with them in Lansing. Unfortunately, he'd missed enough school already, and they sent him on his way. Twelve-year-old Lola Hart lamented to her mother that she had a test that day that would surely kill her. In response, her mother assured her everything would be fine. To brighten the day, Lola stopped to pick lilacs to take with her to class. Seven-year-old Ralph Cushman walked to school with his older sister, Josephine. He talked excitedly about the long summer ahead and all the games of baseball he intended to play. Once at the school, Josephine smiled and promised her little brother she would see him at lunch before disappearing into the sea of students heading to their classes. Principal Floyd Huggett stood on the school steps at 8.30, ringing a bell signifying that class was about to begin. After the last student stepped inside, Huggett walked next door to the church to check on the details for the commencement celebrations planned for the following night. Kehoe drove into the parking lot and headed inside. One of the faculty asked him to check on the boiler. It frequently gave them trouble, and though they'd asked him several times to take a look, it had never been fixed. Many thought it was odd, given Kehoe's ability to fix almost everything. One teacher, Miss Gudekunst, allowed her class to start a little late that day. By 8.35, over 250 students were in attendance. A group of senior boys stepped outside to celebrate their last day with an impromptu baseball game. The day had started out bleary, but seemed to be shaping up nicely. And several minutes after arriving, Kehoe left the school and drove away. The first explosion tore apart the north wing of the school at 8.45. Walls collapsed onto the children. Floors and ceilings shook, windows burst, and brick and plaster shot through the air like missiles. The boys playing baseball outside were thrown to the ground. Survivors and nearby residents scrambled to help. They clawed at the debris to find anyone buried underneath. Parents screamed and sobbed as they clung to lifeless forms on the lawn. A few men passing the Kehoe farm noticed smoke. They stopped to help and found the barn ablaze, realizing it was too late to save any of the animals. They headed to the house but promptly left when they found a stack of dynamite with a timer. They only narrowly escaped. The blast threw them against their cars. A neighbor stood stunned as Kehoe jumped into his truck and yelled at them to get to the school before speeding away. The fire marshal and other first responders at the school noticed the smell of explosives. Rescue efforts were underway to get the wounded to the nearby hospital. Adults took uninjured children to a nearby home to prevent them from seeing so much death and destruction. Kehoe roared into the parking lot and stopped next to Superintendent Hike's car. He jumped out, rifle in hand. Hike walked over to him, either mistaking his intentions to help or possibly to stop Kehoe once he saw the rifle. Kehoe turned and fired into his own truck, where he'd stashed a considerable amount of dynamite and boxes of nuts, bolts, and nails. The shot ignited the dynamite, and a ball of gas and flames incinerated the men. The nails and other loose items became lethal shrapnel hitting bystanders. One of the children who had survived the initial blast died after shrapnel lodged into his spine. Josephine Cushman stood in the parking lot, confused in shock. People ran, screamed, or were lying on the ground. She caught a glimpse of her parents and ran to them, sobbing. Blood streamed from her leg. 
Until then, she had no idea she'd been hit by shrapnel. Her parents asked where her brother was. Josephine shook her head. She had no idea. Rescuers found him still sitting at his desk. Next to Ralph sat another classmate. Neither boy had had time to escape. They were among the 45 killed in the massacre, and 58 others were injured. The rescue efforts and cleanup went on late into the night. Nothing like this had occurred at a school before. But for the residents of Bath, one thing was clear. The explosion hadn't been a case of a faulty boiler. One man, angry over taxes, had meticulously planned the most heinous act they could imagine. There were other victims, not at the school. Investigators found Nellie's charred body in a cart at the back of the farm. Kehoe had also hobbled all the horses in the barn to prevent them from escaping. On a fence, he had left a hand-painted sign. Criminals are made, not born. While the town didn't have all the answers as to why Kehoe had decided on such death and destruction, they knew this much. He blamed everyone else for his actions. It was a miracle Moore hadn't died. Investigators found that Kehoe had been rigging the entire building for months. A short circuit in one of the wires had prevented another 500 pounds of dynamite in the south wing from exploding. In the aftermath, doctors, nurses, and help from neighboring towns poured in. Businesses sent food and provisions. The American Red Cross arrived to assist and took in donations. And then there were onlookers. A neighbor, Monty Ellsworth, owned a gas station just outside of town. He told reporters that a double row of cars passed through Bath. Nearly 50,000 vehicles drove down the stretch of road through the town to pay their respects or bear witness. The traffic was so thick that it took four hours to drive three miles, yet Ellsworth never heard a single car horn. He noted that the cars resembled one long funeral procession of sympathy. Money came in from across the country. A Lansing architect donated new plans for rebuilding the school. Michigan Senator James Cousins donated $75,000. The town rebuilt, slowly. A year later, the school was finished anew, and classes returned from local storerooms to the schoolhouse. Newspapers wrote that Kehoe had been a deranged and demented madman. No matter how anyone tried, they could not understand such an act. Killing children and staff over taxes made sense to no one. One thing was certain, though. Andrew Kehoe unwittingly united a country in the name of those he sought so bitterly to destroy. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. 
When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. It was May of 1963, and the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, had stalled. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others worried about the lack of supporters. King had traveled to Birmingham to rally support and stand toe-to-toe against diehard segregationists. Protests, sit-ins, and boycotts were met with increasing violence, all for the crime of taking part in exposing the cruelty and unjust nature of the Jim Crow mentality. King and other activists knew they needed a new strategy. One of them, James Bevel, made a controversial suggestion. Utilize America's younger generations. The suggestion was met with a lot of pushback. King and the others had seen the violence against the adult protesters, but the idea spread throughout Birmingham's communities. Young adults and teenagers had seen the violence, often firsthand, against their own parents. Their parents were only trying to ensure that they'd have a better, more equitable future and needed help. Older teenagers had already participated in the protests, often marching with their parents. But younger children had always stayed home. King warned the parents that the police would arrest kids and that jail wasn't a place for them. But children throughout the city were determined to make a difference. The idea angered some community leaders. They asked how anyone could suggest pitting young kids against Bull Connor, Birmingham's public safety commissioner, known for his cruel methods of injuring black protesters. Still, children, parents, and other community leaders pushed the grassroots movement forward. They attended meetings and told the kids what to expect. Each child was taught to act nonviolently. The group began to refer to the day they would first protest, May 2nd of 1963, as D-Day. When the day arrived, thousands of children gathered at the 16th Street Baptist Church. After a quick briefing, they left, some carrying signs, to march throughout the city. Children ranging from just seven years old to 18 marched peacefully, making their way to the mayor's office, where they hoped to talk about segregation. Some sang freedom songs, and some marched quietly. All had skipped school. When they reached their destination, they did not receive a warm greeting. They expected to be spat on, pushed, and called names. No matter what happened, they had been instructed to not fight back. But no matter what they had been told, no one expected what would happen next. The police were already there, waiting to arrest them. They were grabbed off the street, kicked and pushed, tossed into wagons and school buses that took them to jail. The children persisted, protesting for days. That's when law enforcement turned water hoses on them, hitting them with force strong enough to knock them off their feet and send them sprawling to the hard pavement. The police unleashed canine units to attack the children. Officers beat protesters with clubs. Bull Connor reportedly laughed when he saw black children running in fear. But the sight of children being brutally attacked moved adult witnesses to respond with violence of their own against the police. They threw rocks, bottles, and bricks. 
Reporters converged on the scene. Those with video cameras were hosed down and arrested. As the days went on, the brutality spurred outrage across the nation. Over 2,000 children were arrested. When the jails and detention centers overflowed, Connor created a makeshift jail at the fairgrounds. The children kept coming and kept protesting. Without more police to fight them or more places to put them, the kids finally won. Connor retaliated. On May 20th, Theo Wright, Birmingham's school superintendent, composed a letter to schools demanding that every student who had participated in the protest be immediately expelled or suspended. The Board of Education members, who Connor had endorsed, all upheld the decision. Though Connor had attempted to quiet the press, they also persisted, showing videos of the attacks on television networks across the country. Business owners also began calling for an end to the violence. President John F. Kennedy sent the Assistant Attorney General to Birmingham to take part in the community negotiations. And eventually, lunch counters, public restrooms, and businesses were desegregated in Birmingham. The children who had protested did make a difference for their communities, their parents, and their own futures. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com.